Hello and welcome to episode 836 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Yo. Today is our Cardinals preview podcast. In the second segment of the show, Jeff Paternostro will talk to Howard Megdal, who just wrote the book on the Cardinals, The Cardinals Way. But we are talking to the author of the BP annual essay on the Cardinals, Dane Perry. Dane writes for CBS Sports, and you can occasionally hear him matching wits, or maybe more than matching wits, with Carson Sestouli on Fangrass Audio. Hey, Dane. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be with you today. You too. So you wrote about the 2015 Cardinals. So let's start there. There was a lot written about how good they actually were. Of course, they won 100 games, which is something that no team had done for a few years. But they either had impeccable timing or were incredibly clutch. And if you look at their Pythagorean record, they were more of a 96-win team. If you look at their third-order record, they were more of an 89-win team. So if we could simulate that season 100,000 times and just replay it with the same players, how many games do you think the 2015 Cardinals would average? You know, I'd give them partial credit for that and maybe call them a 92-93 win team. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm inclined to skew more toward the third-order interpretation of their season. So, yeah, I'd definitely uh, penalize them a few. Uh, You know, the other reality, though, is that they actually literally won 100 games. So. Looking back, you know, there's no taking that away, but certainly looking forward, you're working from a lower baseline than you might think. Mm-hmm. And their offseason, they, they certainly tried to spend some money. They bid on Hayward. They tried to keep Hayward. They tried to sign Price. As it turned out, they didn't do those things. And they only ended up spending big on Mike Leake, who was maybe sort of a replacement for Lance Lynn, who had Tommy John surgery. So as it turned out, it seems like They wanted to trust the talent that they had in the system, which is something they've done in the past many times with some success. But they intended to sign some free agents, at least, that they didn't sign. So to what extent do you think they went into this winter thinking we will just trust the talent we have? And to what extent do you think they really wanted to land some outside talent? You know, I don't, I don't know about outside talent. I think they definitely wanted to retain Hayward, given that, according to all reports, they actually outbid the Cubs in terms of raw dollar amount. So I think this was sort of a, uh, you know, I think uh, maybe we have a tendency to think about team, uh, teams having set in stone plans as they enter an offseason. And by God, this is what we're going to do. Or it's a lot more fluid than that. I think the Cardinals probably intended to raid the coffers for Jason Hayward. Uh, maybe look for a lower cost solution in the rotation uh, than they ultimately wound up spending on league. And then when things fell apart on that front, they shifted gears and kind of uh, uh, decided, well, let's, you know, let's make a more modest investment externally and see what we've got inside. And, you know, I think probably, uh, you know, that's not seeding the division to the Cubs, but I think the writing on the wall is there. So I think the plans were fluid and they adjusted as things happened. I mean, the Cubs, you know, move boldly and, there's only so much you can do to keep up with that. The Cardinals, you know, as somebody might write a book about it, for instance, are a team with a, uh, you know, kind of a, a legendary way. And everybody kind of acknowledges that they're a very well-run organization in this current iteration. Is there anything that has been stolen from them? Is there anything that you think the league has taken from the Cardinals? Or are they kind of theft-proof? I don't know. I, I suppose their emphasis on, they seem to have a bit of an emphasis on, uh, you know, high floor, low ceiling type guys, and then maybe try to develop them up, as it were. 
Uh, and I think that's worked out pretty well for him. You know, I think Colton Wong has potential to be that kind of guy. Matt Carpenter's already that kind of guy. Uh, I don't know how widespread, you know, I don't even know how innovative that is. It's been done before, I'm sure. But if there's a signature of the latest, you know, of the current front office and how they've developed this, I think that's probably it as an emphasis on those kind of players, especially when it comes to plugging holes that pop up. Do you think that if if we were to bestow a title belt for best run organization in baseball. The Cardinals probably would have held that for the last several years, despite all the animosity that that has engendered among some people who don't like the Cardinals. Do you think that they have relinquished that now as a a combination of either talent or hacking scandal or all of the above? Or do you think that despite what the Cubs have built, you would still give that honorary meaningless title to St. Louis? Well, you mentioned a championship belt, and I'm still thinking about that. (laughs) I mean, that opens up a whole world of possibilities, the wrestling connection, like the heel turn when they get caught stealing from the Astros. Right. They could have embraced that, but they they didn't. That's the thing about the Cardinals is that, like, you, they they could be the heel, but you really get the sense that they are, like, that they are completely mystified about why the rest of the world uh, hates them. Like, that that it it is much of what what people hate about the Cardinals, I think, is their own total naivete about why people hate the Cardinals. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I grew up a Cardinals fan and I, and I, I'm still, I, I just find the, uh, the complete inability to relate to the contempt. I mean, I get it. You know what I mean? I get it. I would, I would probably detest them from afar if I weren't a fan of them. You know what I mean? Cubs fans could use some self-awareness on that front as well, but yeah, I get it. But yeah, there's this, there's this, how can you possibly dislike us? Look at the way we play the game, that sort of thing. You have things like the, you know, I'll use air quotes on the cheating scandal because I'm not really sure that was it. Maybe it was, but just the, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta wear that. You know what I mean? A, a high, highly placed front office member was tampering with another team's computer system. You gotta wear that. You gotta own that. And there's a sort of a, uh, oh, please, that was just a rogue agent doing this. And, yeah, the lack of self-awareness is very frustrating. I wish it weren't there, but it's it's become kind of part of their identity. So it is what it is. The um, you know we you mentioned Hayward going to the Cubs, and and you know we've talked about how it seems like the Cubs got players to sign for them this offseason, partly because they bought into the Cubs. They bought into this vision of like what it's going to be like to be a Cub and to play for Joe Madden and to play for this team that might break the drought and all that sort of thing. The Cardinals have spent decades building this reputation of themselves as this classy organization. Their fans is a great fan base. Their team is always competitive. Their managers is often very cerebral. Have you gotten the sense in in your many, many, many years observing them that players are grateful for the chance to play? Is that, I guess what I'm saying is, is there any extra benefit in uh, recruiting or keeping players in St. Louis? Or for the most part, is it not enough to uh, move the needle? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fading advantage. I think, you know, part of me thinks it was real. I mean, I, you think about like the trades for Scott Rowland and McGuire and, and you know, Matt Holiday even and that sort of thing. There was a sense of, oh boy, wait till their name gets called at Bush for the first time and we take them in our loving arms and they will not be able to resist and that sort of thing. I don't know if that's a real thing or not. I mean, I don't know if those kind of incentives matter a great deal to players, but the feeling was that it was genuine. I, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I mean, there's so many other concerns and considerations for players when they choose a long-term home. And I think uh, if it's a competitive team and it's a enthused fan base, you're going to get a warm reception. You're going to be popular. You're going to get drinks bought for you and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure the Cardinals 
have that sort of advantage anymore. Uh, particularly when you're talking about a place, let's be honest, that not everyone is dying to live in that area. I mean, there's a lot more appealing locales, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, what have you. So I think that was a real thing at one point, but I don't see that, that it's much of an advantage anymore. And one of the things Hayward said after he signed with St. Louis sort of came off as a parting shot, although he probably didn't mean it that way, was the aging core comment. He suggested that the Cubs are kind of this up and coming team and the Cardinals are maybe fading. Do you think that was a fair critique? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Molina has a lot of miles on him. He's on the wrong side of 30. Injuries are copping up. Adam Wainwright is, I think, going into his age 34 season. Matt Holliday is is getting up there and showing signs of decline. I mean, you know, there's there's certainly a, a young talent base there, but it doesn't compare to the Cubs, let's be honest. I mean, I think, I think that was a perfectly valid criticism. Maybe something better left unsaid, but it was perfectly valid when he said it. So, yeah, I don't think that was a, a, an unjust shot or anything like that. So, viva la Hayward. A few years ago, and you're right, I mean, nothing compares to the Cubs' young core at this point. Uh, but a few years ago, the Cardinals had, you know, the best system in baseball, along with having a very good team already. And, you know, like Wong is uh, is an established major leaguer. Grichuk has done well. Piscotty is. Seems like he's doing well. Rosenthal's doing well. I'm trying to think of who else was on that. Waka, Carlos Martinez. Would you consider that core of prospects that they had like three, four years ago when they were the best system in baseball to have developed well? Or is that a um, is, is what they have now kind of an underwhelming result of just how good the system was three years ago. No, I, I think I think they developed properly is the word I would use. I mean, you know, we tend to overrate how much value prospects are going to provide at the major league level. We look at them and say, oh my God, imagine what this guy is going to do when he's in his prime years and all that. And it just, you know, it doesn't seem to work that way. And, you know, and with the Cardinals case, I think these guys would turn out to be generally productive. You know, at the end of the day, that's about all you can ask from a prospect, no matter what his ceiling. Obviously, you're going to get guys that, at the far end of the curve, like Bryant and that sort of thing, who, who, you know, we assume Bryant is going to meet those kind of expectations, but that is not always the case. And, you know, and with the Cardinals case, I always hesitate to reduce this, but let's also not forget about Oscar Tavares, his passing, you know, who knows what he would have become. He could have been the signature guy in that crop. Uh, he was certainly a part of it a few years ago. And that on the, strictly speaking, on the field terms, that was significant loss. So, you know, I, I, I can't see how you can look at what those guys have become and be disappointed just because it doesn't compare to what we think the Cubs are going to have. And it seems like there's still a lot of pitching here. They have have Wainwright, who presumably is back to something approaching full strength. And there's Waka, and now there's Leak, and there's Garcia and Martinez. And they have guys like uh, Marco Gonzalez and Tim Cooney. And I guess, you know, Alex Reyes is probably the, the top prospect, maybe a little bit further away. Do you think the offense is there, though? They are entrusting a, a few positions to guys who aren't quite as established. And then, of course, there's Molina coming back from the injuries, Peralta now missing time. Do you think this team will hit enough? That's going to be a concern. The offense, I think you're going to look at sort of a, I guess it would be best served in hoping to avoid any black holes in the lineup, more of a balanced approach. You don't have a superstar in that lineup. You know, you know, maybe the full package of Molina was on that level a few years ago, but he's in decline. We've probably seen the best from Matt Carpenter. You know, maybe, you know, who knows what Piscotti and Grichuk's ceilings are, but I don't see them as being superstar level, at least in 2016. So, you know, I, I think it's more of a getting average to modestly above average production from, you know, almost every spot as opposed to having a superstar driven lineup. I think they can score some runs, but yeah, not not a top tier offense in the National League, I don't think. 
On the spectrum of Yadier Molina was a very good player whose greatness was captured by his stats to Yadier Molina was a player with very good stats who was also somehow magically responsible for every other bit of success the Cardinals had, which is something that people seem to write about Yadier Molina. Where do you fall? I think there is uh, probably a significant portion of his value that can't be captured in the numbers. I think that probably applies to any great catcher. I mean, I know that you know, the work that, you know, for instance, like Jonathan Judge has done on, on pitch frame and that sort of thing. And I love where all this is going, but I still feel like there's something, some je ne sais quoi about catchers that uh, we can't properly put a number on, particularly great catchers like Molina and even Buster Posey. I mean, you know, we know how great he is, but there's probably still a chunk of his value that we're not gauging properly. And that, you know, catchers are just, you know, they're mystical to me. You know, they always have been. And you know, particularly in this era of pitch framing, which has sort of replaced, you know, throwing out runners as the signature defensive skill of catchers and all that kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely, believe, I mean, you know, you hear pitchers talk about him, you know, it's, they almost like, oh my God, Molina throwing to him is just, and there's got to be something to that, you know, maybe we, maybe that eludes us when we're outside of the game, but yeah, I buy into it. I don't think it makes him a superstar level performer anymore considering his offensive decline and his injuries. But there's a significant check of his value, I think, that eludes us. And what do you expect from Waka, who was great and had the postseason heroics and then sort of faded and had issues down the stretch last year? Yeah, that's Martinez and Waka, their innings volume is going to be one of the key factors for this season. You know, I, I love what he does on a rate basis. I just wonder about his stamina. Speaking of Waka, you know, is he able to, is he going to be able to be a consistent 200 inning guy? Is he going to be able to be that this year? Because they probably need him to be that this year. And, you know, will they be able to get a combined, you know, I don't know, 375 innings from Martinez and Waka? And I'm just, I'm just not sure about that. And I think, you know, whether they can repeat as division champs or maybe even make the postseason may hinge on the kind of volume they get from those two guys. And have you seen any major evolution in Mike Matheny in his time as Cardinals manager? And, and do you see him as a net positive or negative at this point? Yeah, I would call him a net negative overall. Uh, I think there is, you know, having spoken to couple of guys close to the team, there is a genuine belief that he is very good at what we might call soft factors about, you know, inspiring and getting the most from them and and relating to them. And, you know, I certainly don't dismiss that as a managerial skill. We can't hang a number on it, but it's there. And I I absolutely believe it makes a difference. He's progressed, I think, in that he's, he doesn't tinker with the offense as much as he did in his first one or two years, but I still think he's sort of a paint by numbers bullpen guy. Just not creative and not responsive to the situations at all. And I think that's probably his biggest shortcoming. And that's probably why I call him a net negative overall without being able to evaluate for those soft factors. The thing about the soft factors, and I think Ben and I tend to defer to those, especially when, um, you know, it seems clear that that's a huge part of the manager's appeal. And we recognize that the people around him would know better than we do. But it also seems like every manager uh, that can be the defense, no matter how bad they get. It's almost like yeah. the uh, Nichols law of catcher defense. Like the worse, the the worse you are on X's and O's, the more we will ascribe soft factors to you. And it also kind of reminds me of the way that, like everybody who asks me about their team's Pakoda projections will say, like I'll acknowledge that yeah, there's some guys who Pakoda maybe can't necessarily see everything about them, but it's not going to be like every fan wants all the players on their team to be that one guy, the one guy who has that thing that we can't see about him. And obviously all 30 cannot be above average soft factors guys. So like, it, I don't know. It, it's, it seems like, you know, like you say, it's nice to defer to that idea, 
but I don't know that I get enough smoke on Matheny's soft factors to be convinced that it's really there. I don't know. I mean, you, you would know better than I. I mean, I was I was kind of wondering how hot a take you could provide on Mike Matheny because he seems to be a guy who's fairly blank for a, a manager who's had a lot of wins and is in a fairly high profile role. Yeah, I mean, there's I, I you know there's always when you know when they stumble in the postseason, you know, fire Matheny and that sort of thing. And thinking at it from an internal perspective, how do you fire a guy with that kind of record? You know what I mean? I mean, no, he hasn't won the World Series and. Yes, he leaves his starting pitchers in too long in the postseason and his bullpen moves, you can see them telegraph from a mile away. But how do you call him into your office and say, look, Mike, you know, we got to cut you loose and da, da, da. How do you do that? I mean, maybe you can argue that that should be done. And there probably is a manager out there who could get more out of this team than Matheny has. But I, I don't know. This, this, But those kind of decisions happen in the real world where there are human elements to consider and that sort of thing. And I just I don't see how you find the get the political cover, if you want to call it that, to fire Mike Matheny. Yeah, I think it, you're right in this specific case with Matheny. It also does feel like now that we've seen Matheny for four years, I mean, he's not a new manager. We've seen him for four years. He's been successful those four years. It's been a good a good run for the Cardinals, but it doesn't really feel like a great fit, does it? Like It, it, it sort of seems like for a guy who's had all this success his chair might be wobblier than than the typical just because it, i don't know i just don't really feel from afar like there's a perfect click between the dugout and the front office uh in that organization he physically looks confused a lot <laughs> yeah yeah you remember Moneyball about standing on the top step and projecting authority i mean it he doesn't do that you know he va- he always looked like this vaguely Oh boy, what do I do now? You know, I mean, he, he looks like the game is slowly slipping from his grasp during the course of it. And I, you know, I hate the term optics because I sound like a political consultant, but I mean, Matheny does not have good optics. He doesn't look like he knows what he's doing sometimes. Smart guy, but it just sometimes he looks like he doesn't. He might be like one of those prospects where you go, well, he's going to have to, he's going to have to perform to earn every promotion. It might just be that Matheny, like, I might feel this way for the next 10 years and he might win 96 games every year and be, a, you know, at some point, like he will just win the argument and we'll quit worrying about optics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like looking back over someone's career stats or something. Whoa, that guy was good. Why didn't I, why didn't I, why didn't I notice yeah. him at the time? You know, I'm trying to think who that would be, but there's, there's always guys like that. Reggie Smith, for instance, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, pretty much I, everybody, everybody named Reggie. In fact, I think like Red, Reggie Sanders, Reggie, yeah, Reggie Jefferson. Yeah, that is yeah. that is that is the name of the uh, perhaps the unappreciated uh, ball player. Yeah. I think a lot of soft factor type appeal. And if memory serves, Bill James has written about this before. You know, it's it's more of a organizational thing that crosses managers. Like if you have a players guy, then you and when that runs its course, you hire an a hole, and then when that runs its course, you go back to a players guy and. That, you know, probably putting a different charge in the clubhouse and the dugout might, you know, some of the soft factors might flow from that. It's, you know, and that's why I'm kind of fascinated by the guys who have such a long shelf life, like Tory and Madden, those guys who kind of seem to be players guys, but can also, you know, crack down when they have to and that sort of thing. So, you know, again, soft factors, when we talk about it, we don't really know what we're talking about. This is the last guaranteed year of Matt Holliday's contract. He's been with the Cardinals since 2010. He has a team option at $17 million for 2017 when he'll be 37. That option is guaranteed if he has a top 10 MVP finish. And if he does, then they'll be happy that it's guaranteed. But how would you handicap the odds of that option being picked up right now? I certainly don't think it will be. I mean, this has been a wildly successful 
contract for the Cardinals as, you know, nine-figure contracts go. But, I mean, you know, definitely showed signs of power fading last season, kind of transition to old player skills where he's, you know, more patient to play and that kind of thing. I think he's still going to be a useful player. And I realize that $17 million is not as much as it sounds in today's dollars, but I, I don't think they're going to evaluate him being worth that much uh, going into the – obviously, if he's fully healthy this season and kind of, you know, experiences a power resurgence, they'll probably reevaluate that kind of thing. But if he kind of continues on the trajectory he's on where you've seen a bit of loss of power and that sort of thing, if he doesn't take to first base, which is probably going to be an experiment this spring, then they may think better of that at those prices, and I think they'll probably pass on him. All right, and we will end, as we always do, by putting our guest on the spot and asking for a win total prediction. So how many games will the 2016 Cardinals win? 89. Wow, okay. You had that in the holster. You had that ready to go. You know, off the top of my head, it'll be entirely wrong, but it sounds plausible. (laughs) All right, so you can find Dane Perry at CBS Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Dane Perry. You can read his book about a guy named Reggie. You wrote a biography of a non-underrated Reggie, Reggie Jackson. Confirmed. <laughs> so thank you. My mom likes the book. So. Oh, good. Does Reggie like the book? I No, I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> if he's been bothered to read it, I, I can guarantee he doesn't like it. Did Reggie Sanders like the book? Reggie Sanders <laughs> blurbed it, actually. In <laughs> fact. All right. Thank you, Dane. Thank you, guys. All right, so stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff talk to Howard Magdal. I got this St. Louis blues. I'm just as blue as I can be. Seems like that gal's got a heart like a rock cast in the sea. Or else she wouldn't have gone. I'm so far away from you. In the second half of our 2016 Cardinals preview, we are joined by Howard Megdal, contributing editor at Excel Sports and author of The Cardinals Way, How One Team Embraced Tradition and Moneyball at the Same Time. Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you call it The Cardinals Way. Others may refer to it as Cardinals Devil Magic. <laughs> It will be put to the test again this season, as St. Louis lost both Jason Hayward and John Lester to their NL Central rivals in Chicago. But no one seems to be that concerned about them continuing to compete. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that there's a real depth in the farm system that allows them to plug holes. Now, not necessarily by uh, equivalent players, but certainly the drop-off is not significant enough uh, in either case, quite frankly, that... Uh, you have a concern. And, you know, in terms of losing John Lackey, they went out and got Mike Leak, and the difference is likely to be negligible. Not to mention that, you know, in either case, you were talking about a guy who, if uh, players stay healthy in the starting rotation, was going to be, you know, a back end guy anyway. And as far as losing Jason Hayward, who was a player I think very highly of, uh, who they did as well, quite frankly. Uh, and we're hoping to build around for years to come, when you can go ahead and plug in a guy like Stephen Piscotti, you know, a young up-and-coming uh, hitter who's already been a plus, uh, a plus option in the outfield uh, at a young age, you know, it really limits how much of a danger there is. There's, there's no free-fall effect when the Cardinals lose virtually anybody. So you look up and down that St. Louis lineup, 
And you don't see big names other than, I guess, Yadier Molina and Matt Holliday, both of whom are still very productive major leaguers, good major leaguers, but maybe past their peak seasons and likely aren't superstars anymore. So among the starters this year, who's the name that might break out and enter the national consciousness? So to me, the biggest name that could do that is Colton Wong. And when you, you know, you look at a guy at second base who has the power speed combination that he does, he's also been, you know, slightly below league average, you know, if you go by OPS plus in terms of uh, his production, but still just 24 years old, has a tremendous amount of talent. The Cardinals, you know, did the thing they do which is they signed him, you know, first-generation contract, locked him in over the long term. It was five years, $25.5 million. So they have a nice cost-controlled second baseman for the next half decade. And Juan would be a guy I'd really be looking at. Uh, I'd also uh, say that a healthy Randall Gritchick, you know, playing in center field is someone who could break out in a big way. Piscotti's a name that people haven't really talked about, but certainly could as well. Uh, he's a product of uh, that farm system, one of the Dan Kantrovitz, uh, draft classes when he was scouting director before moving on to assistant GM over in Oakland. Uh, so there are a lot of different guys. And then, of course, there's Tommy Pham, who, you know, if he stays healthy, is, you know, it's sort of that phrase that you use a lot. And it means more. You say it sort of in all caps with Tommy Pham, who said so many injuries sort of hold him back throughout. When Tommy Pham is on the field, he just flat out produces. And so, uh, staying healthy is a skill, and I don't think you can assume it will happen. But if he does, Tommy Pham's a guy who I think uh, could sur- surprise people. Um, I think I saw recently he, among the projected 2016 players, I think Fangraphs had it, was uh, you know one of the uh, highest rated reserves. And there's a good reason for that. So you mentioned Colton Wong is a key player this year, potentially. And he is the one young name the Cardinals have locked up long term. He recently signed an extension that'd be worth up to six years and $37 million. Are you surprised at this deal or does this fit in with St. Louis's modus operandi? No, it's very much within their MO. And I would just point out, it's really similar in a lot of ways to the six-year $51 million extension Matt Carpenter signed uh, a couple of years ago. And even something they did with Alan Craig uh, before uh, Craig, you know, was battered by injuries and, you know, ultimately limited his effectiveness going forward. So, you know, the Cardinals understand, and, you know, a lot of the smarter teams do, that there's more value to be had in those first-generation extensions that buy out some free agent years than getting guys, generally speaking, on the free agent market. Really, the one of the things that made Hayward the exception to the rule was Atlanta had brought him up so young and so early, you were going to start with his age 26 season. So that uh, second-generation contract was uh, at a more advantageous place on the aging curve uh, for a hitter. Uh, but the Cardinals, you know, have an opportunity to do that with Carpenter, with Juan. And quite frankly, it would surprise me if they don't do something similar with, say, Stephen Piscotti once he establishes himself as well. Move over to the pitching side, and the top-line name here is Adam Wainwright, who's been an ace-level starting pitcher when he's been healthy, obviously coming off an Achilles injury last year. He's going to be 34 this season, which I think to both of us as Mets fans is kind of surprising, or at least a reminder of our own mortality. But uh, what can the Cardinals expect from Wainwright this year? So many things are a reminder of our own mortality as we age. It's no question about it. And yes, you're right. Wainwright being a contemporary of ours is certainly one of them. And uh, I, I think the short answer is you don't necessarily know what to expect from Wainwright. I think it runs the gamut. 
a guy who's had his share of injuries through the years, uh, who's been dominant when he's out there. What I do think the Cardinals have going for them is that there's no reason to rely on him as a number one starter if everything is going right elsewhere in the rotation, by which I mean, you know, it's deceptive. Wainwright's the big name. Wainwright's the guy, you know, with the numbers. But they're really built around a couple of much younger starting pitchers. And I, I think that's where sort of the narrative of the Cardinals is this veteran team uh, sort of gets misplaced, right? They're really built around Michael Walker and Carlos Martinez, who are a pair of dominant young starters, 24 years old apiece, uh, who should be a tremendous one-two punch and arguably as good as, you know, anyone this side of uh, the New York Mets when it comes to having dominance at the top of your starting rotation. And from that perspective, you think of, all right, look, what are you getting out of Wainwright? Who's to say coming off of missing a full season, an Achilles injury, previously arm troubles? All you really need is for him to be a really good third starter for them to be what they need to be. And it's in much the same way that you think about, oh, well, they're aging because Matt Holiday's in the outfield. But you know what? You also have Piscotti. You also have Richick. You also have Tommy Pham. Um, the one place where the aging issue is a potential problem is Yadier Molina. And you talked about still uh, that he is a viable major league hitter. Uh, and he certainly is, but you looked at that OPS plus, it went from, uh, if memory serves, 129 to 102 to 80 over the last couple of years. And uh, they've, you know, they've used him as hard as any catcher in the game uh, because Molina is so valuable to them and he's playing 135, 140 games a year. Uh, but catchers don't tend to age gracefully. They have a useful backup in Brian Pena who actually bridges the gap. He's a decent hitter, and he calls a good game in much the same way, although not to the same extent Molina does. But that's really sort of the vulnerable spot for them in terms of aging, because they have not developed that catcher yet to be the heir apparent. Past Wainwright, you have, as some of the guys you already mentioned, but Michael Waka, Trevor Rosenthal, Carlos Martinez, all big wins for their player development system, all developed internally. But all three also have had some injury and durability issues of their own. What do you think 2016 holds for them? I, I think you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. That's the issue. Are Martinez and Waka 200-inning horse starters this year for them? Uh, neither of them were able to finish the season physically as strong as, as they would have liked. Uh, the Cardinals are wisely ramping them up slowly here in the spring, you know, with the idea being you know, they want them healthy for October rather than healthy for April. And it'll be interesting to see how much they can give them. But sure, they, they absolutely, so much depends on that. In much the same way, you, you know, you looked at that bullpen and Kevin Segrist, who's another massive win for the player development system, not a high draft pick, um, a guy who Charlie Gonzalez, a scout then with the Cardinals, now with the, uh, now with the Astros, believed would someday throw high 90s. You know, well, he's back and they need him to be the setup man, you know, they desperately uh, could use in, say, the seventh inning. And Segrist comes in throwing a curveball because he is looking to get righties and lefties out this year. So it will be fascinating to see, but they do. They they need health in that starting pitching rotation and in the bullpen. I guess that's true of 30 teams, but certainly there are, there are red flags. You know, I, I don't know who coined the phrase, but the idea that the biggest red flag for a pitcher getting hurt is that a pitcher's already been hurt. I, I think it is undoubtedly true. I think that's our friend Toby Hyde, actually. Ah, uh, well, that makes sense. To Toby, Toby knows everything. So to shore up that rotation with these red flags, they did make one 
significant free agent move in sort of the middle class of free agent pitchers. That's Mike Leak. Is he just there for depth and proven innings, or the Cardinals think there's something more there? It's more of the depth issue. It's more making sure you have enough innings accounted for. And I, I mean, look, you know, he's entering his age 28 season. He has been the definition of a league average starter. His ERA plus is 101 for his career. He strikes out about six per nine. You know, I mean, he he doesn't walk a ton. And, um, you know, you throw him out there and you know what you're getting. And I will say the real loss in that rotation is Lance Lynn, who's missing the 2016 season with Tommy John surgery. And Lance Lynn, uh, who pitched through pain through most of the second half of last year, Lynn is sort of my like unsung hero of the Cardinals rotation. That's a guy who's a lot better than people give him credit for, and they view him as sort of a Mike Leap type. And he's been much, much better than Leak has been throughout his career and is still on the young side. It'll be interesting to see what he gives him coming back healthy on the other side of this surgery. But, you know, Lance Lynn, depending on how you measure it, has been, you know, a lot better uh, than people give him credit for. And last year, ERA plus 131, year before ERA plus 133. I mean, really an elite pitcher uh, in a lot of ways. So I don't want to spoil any of your thesis. But how is it the Cardinals always seem to find, let's say, an eighth-round college guy and turn him into a good regular? And who do you think is the next unheralded name on the farm system to break into a meaningful major league role in St. Louis? See, that's so interesting. I mean, so the the short answer in terms of how it's been happening for the last, let's say, half dozen years, right, is that they have combined a, a player development system that's always been terrific at finalizing players, right? And they've been able to do that with, over the last dozen years, an analytics rebuild that allowed them to get better basic material into the team. And so that's a very significant thing. The question that I have going forward, of course, and and this is not just me, but this is anyone, is how do they turn what they have into, you know, an analytics advantage when you have 30 teams trying to do the same thing? And, And there's no real good answer to that other than they have a solid analytics team they have the ability and they have the head start which allows them to sort of come together it, it you think about like any system you, you know you're knocking buds out of it. i don't mean farm system i mean any sort of business system uh well they've been doing it uh, a long time now and you can see there's sort of a a lack of bottlenecks along the way so they have that going for them i guess you know who i'll throw out there as uh there are two names i would keep an eye on um, who were not top pitch, not highly heralded picks. One is Carson Kelly, um, who had been uh, third baseman uh, when they drafted him. And Kelly, they converted to catcher. There's someone they're very high on, uh, someone who has the arm for catching. And again, it sort of dovetails with what we were talking about with Yadier Molina. They need an heir apparent. And I could see his bat carrying him up to the major leagues. And they were very happy with early on what they saw uh, with his transition uh, behind the plate. The other guy who I really like, um, and I've seen him uh, a few times now, uh, he was at AA last year's uh, Charlie Tilson. Uh, Tilson hasn't given you very much power at all, but his speed defense combination, I think, can make him uh, an effective center fielder. Not to mention the fact that he can handle center field so well means you could throw him out there, you know, in sort of a fourth outfielder role as well. But I could see Tilson when he gets to the major leagues outperforming what he's done even in the minor leagues so far. So those are two guys that uh, I particularly like within the system who we might see soon. 
All right, we're going to put you on the spot, Howard. The Cardinals haven't missed a playoff since 2010. Haven't won fewer than 86 games since 2007. Mm. This is going to be a tough division at the top. Can you see them holding off the Cubs and Pirates again despite losing Hayward and Lester, or are they going to be in a wild-card dogfight? Here's what I will say, and and I don't mean to give a non-answer to it. I think you can make an argument that the three best teams in baseball this year are in the National League Central. I I think the Cubs have improved tremendously. I think the Cubs are really impressive. Um, I think the Cardinals have a lot of talent top to bottom, and I think they're going to be terrific this year. And I think the Pirates, who no no one's really talking about, have an opportunity as much as anyone to win the National League pennant, not to mention, you know, the mediocre pitchers they bring in uh, go to Ray Searage and come out the other side as excellent pitchers because Ray Searage is a genius. You know, you want to talk about Cardinals devil magic, there should be Ray Searage devil magic should be talked about. So I think all three of those teams are in prime contention. It would not surprise me if all three of those teams made the playoffs, although whoever the non-Nationals Mets winner is out of the National League East is going to get to fatten up on the rest of the NL East, and I think that should be helpful. Uh, So my non-answer for you is maybe. (laughs) Howard Magdo, author of The Cardinals Way, available at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, Cardinals preview complete. Thank you to Dane and Howard for joining us. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It comes out May 3rd, and it's the story of how Sam and I took over the baseball operations department or formed the baseball operations department of an independent league team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer, and the various hijinks and triumphs and existential crises that accompanied our efforts. Publication date is May 3rd, but if you pre-order, you might get it a little bit early. You can also rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow with a preview for the Cardinals division rival, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Don't let us see your Cardinal Don't let us see your Cardinal